this week we're going to conclude our series on knowing God by continuing to address the question, does God really care? Most of us believe or at least want to believe that God cares about us. After all, we struggle with whether we really care about one another. We've all struggled with whether others really care about us. I, I like the, uh, the story I heard not too long ago about a pastor who had been ill, and the uh, care and concern committee of his church met together just trying to decide what to do. And so one of the representatives went to his home and took him a, a get well card and knocked on the door, and he came to the door and said, Pastor, how are you? And he said, well, I'm, I'm feeling a lot better. Thank you for asking. Well, the, the committee, care and concern committee got together, and we decided to to uh, give you this, you know, get well card. He said, well, that's really nice. You know, tell everybody I said thank you. She looked at him kind of funny and said, well, actually the vote was four to three. And uh, so, you know, it's a, a typical committee type thing. And uh, sometimes we feel that way. You know, we feel like, okay, well, some people care, some people don't, and that's just the way life is. And we're really hoping that, you know, God cares. But oftentimes we just don't feel like he does. I mean, how many of you have struggled in your own life with the feeling that, you know what, even God doesn't care about me at this particular time. Have you ever struggled with that? I mean, our relationship with God's like our relationships with a lot of other people. You know, it's a roller coaster ride, and, and, and you know, the way I picture it is envision yourself on a roller coaster that you've gone on. You know, sometimes it, it's like marriage is like that. You know, it's, it's like the Colossus, you know. Uh, you've been there, and you know what's going to happen when you start going up the hill. And, uh, you know, you can hear the wheels creaking and you can hear the chain yanking you up and you just know what's going to happen. And then the next thing you know, you're just gone that ride and you're just hanging on. And you can grit your teeth and bear it or you can throw up your hands and say, you know, whatever you want to do. But here we go again. You know, and, and it's kind of like the corkscrew. You know, sometimes in a relationship, you don't even know what's going on. And everything's kind of turned around upside down. And, uh, and that's what our relationship with God is like quite often. We just don't feel like God loves us. But the problem is that our feelings are so subjective and they always throw us off. So we need to somehow find some objectivity. How do you balance out the feelings? How do you balance out when you don't feel like someone loves you or you don't feel like God loves you and yet we know that the Bible says that he does? And that's really the way that we balance it out. That's where all subjectivity is thrown out and it becomes very objective. What does God have to say? Well, the Bible tells us that God loves us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God loves us. Okay, well, that's great, but sometimes I don't feel like it. That's why I've got to turn back to what the Bible says. God demonstrates his love in practical, tangible ways. And just to update, upgrade, upgrade, <laughs> uh, update you and move ahead from what we started to talk about last week, we saw that God demonstrates his love, number one, through impartial actions. Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, whether you believe in God, you don't believe in God, God is objective and he is impartial in the way that he treats people. We all have the benefit of enjoying the sunrise. We all have the benefit of enjoying the blessings of God. We all have the, well, we all have the benefit of enjoying the blessing of God as, as it rains outside. So frankly, you know what, whether we understand it or not, it's raining on everybody in Southern California today. That's just the way it is. Whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God. God is impartial in his actions toward the world in many, many respects, and he demonstrates his love that way. The second thing we saw is that he also disciplines us. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 that whom God loves as a son, he steps in and disciplines. That God oftentimes will interject into our life discipline, and we think that he doesn't love us, but in reality it's because he does love us. And he doesn't want us to go down the road that he knows will destroy us, and he can see the final outcome. 
God in his infinite love and his mercy will step in and say, hey, that's enough, and that's as far as you're going down that path. We know that God loves us and he demonstrates his love for us, and yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love while we were yet sinners. He sent his son into this world to die for our sins, to be the provision that is acceptable to God for the forgiveness of sins to those who would put their faith and trust in God's plan. We know that God also loves us and that while we're suffering, he sustains us in times of difficulty and trial. While we're going through difficult times, it's only then that you can really feel the love of God embrace you in your life. Many of us during that time feel that God doesn't love us and that somehow he's deserted us. But the Bible says while we're faithless, he's faithful. And that he'll never desert us. Nothing will separate us. Romans 8, we sang about it. Romans 8 says that nothing. What will separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Trials won't. Distress won't. Persecution won't. Famine won't. Nakedness won't. All the, quote, bad things in life are not separating us from the love of God that's found in Christ. And the last thing that we saw was God also demonstrates his love and yet being very patient with us. Well, many of us turn our back on God, deny that he exists, or want to in our own way do what we want to do despite what God has to say. God is patient with us. Which leads me to what we're going to discuss for this final message, and that is one of the things that impresses me upon, impresses upon me the love of God is God's mercy. As David was saying, God is a just God, he's a holy God, but he's also a merciful God, and he's a God full of grace. And we need to understand that. This past week, as I was doing a word study on the word mercy, you go through the Bible and you begin to realize, you know what, the Bible very clearly teaches that while God is love, one of the ways he demonstrates his love for us is that he is merciful toward us. And we have a problem with that sometimes in understanding that because it's a difficult thing. But the Bible says in Deuteronomy 4.31 that he's a merciful God. In 2 Corinthians 1.3, it speaks of the Father of mercies. Micah 7.18 says that God delights in mercy. The, words mercy are tra- the word mercy is translated pity or compassion. And in Psalm 103, verse 4, read this. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. See, love describes God's character, but mercy describes what God does. I want you to stop and think about something for a moment. In Second Chronicles, I mean in First Chronicles, King David had this to say about the mercy of God. There were men that were sent to him, and God was going to judge the nation of Israel for their disobedience. And Gad was sent to David, and he gave David three choices. Well, what punishment would you like? A, B, or C? And David, as he contemplated the punishment that was going to be bestowed upon the nation, as he responded to, to Gad, he said this in 1 Chronicles 21.13. He said this, And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord... For his mercies are very great, but don't let me fall into the hand of man. I like that. For his mercies are very great. See, what we need to understand, the Bible clearly teaches, and see, this needs to be presented in a balanced way because that's exactly how the Bible teaches. But what God, what he's saying is, you know what? It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We will have to give an account to God. We will be judged by God. And it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But listen to what he's saying. I would rather fall into the hands, as terrifying as they are, into the hands of the living God, than allow my fellow man to judge me. What does that have to say? 
about the judgment of man. Think about that. As terrifying as it is, and I know that God is holy and he's righteous and he judges sin, and he's going to hold me accountable for what I do, and what I, what I sow I'm going to reap, but as I consider all the options here, the one reason I want to fall into God's hands is because God knows all things. He's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God knows everything. He knows what I was going through. He knows why I did what I did, even when I don't know it. He knows more than I'll ever know, and he certainly knows more than, one, than you'll ever know or will ever know about one another. And because of that, I'd rather fall into his hands. You know why? Because his justice is exactly that. It's just. Man isn't always just in the way that we judge one another. Oh, I'll forgive you, but I ain't going to forget it. A pound of flesh. That's all we require is one pound. And if that doesn't satisfy me when we're done, then we'll go for two. See, man is like that. And I like what David has to say. You know what? I don't want man judging me. I'd rather have God judge me, and it's a terrifying thing to fall into his hands, but I'd rather go that direction because you know why? God will give me what I deserve. And you know what? And if he doesn't give me what I deserve, he'll give me mercy. I like that. If he doesn't give me what I deserve, I can bank on him, I can count on him to be merciful. How does God show his mercy? The Bible is filled with different examples. I love Psalm 23. Surely goodness and what? Mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely God's goodness and his mercy will follow me all the days of my life. God is a merciful God. But the question is, he just doesn't say it. How does he demonstrate it? And that's what we're going to take a look at. You know, I, I, like, I like how one writer puts this. He says that mercy, it, it does not mean only to sympathize with a person in the popular sense of the term. It does not mean simply to feel sorry for someone in trouble. The word mercy means the ability to get right inside the other person's skin. Think about that. The ability to get right inside the other person's skin. As we would say, to walk in another person's shoes. To really empathize with what they're going through. I mean, God literally did that in the person of Jesus Christ. He got within our skin. He walked around in our skin. He walked around in our shoes. The Bible says that what is man that you would even consider me? What am I, God? You would even consider me. But I know that you do. But you know that our frame is but dust, that we're frail, that we're fragile, that we make mistakes, that we stumble, that we trip, that we fall, we screw up. And the bottom line is, but, you're still, but you still are merciful to us. It goes on and says, clearly this is much more than an emotional wave of pity. It demands a quite deliberate effort of the mind and of the will. It denotes a sympathy which is, not, which is not given, as it were, from the outside, but which comes from a deliberate identification with the other person until we see things as he sees them and feel things as he feels them. I like that. God is a God of great mercy. So as we look at this, I think that if anything, if you ever doubt the love of God and his care for you, as we see what the Bible says about the mercy of God, you should walk away quite encouraged about what we read and about what we know about God. Because the first way that God demonstrates his mercy is by not giving us what we deserve. God demonstrates his mercy by not giving us what we deserve. Now, I, 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 this is where all the problem starts. This is where our misunderstanding about the love of God really begins. 
Because here's the way it usually works. Often we think that God doesn't care for us. Why? Because he doesn't get a, give us what we feel we deserve. Right? Isn't that true? Think about this. Think this through with me for a minute. Fill in the blank. God doesn't care about me because he didn't give me what I felt I deserve. I deserve better. Well, what is it that you feel you deserve? I deserve a better job. I deserve more money. I deserve better kids. I deserve, you know, better health. I deserve a better spouse. I mean, God, you know me. I mean, look at me. Look at, I'm, look at I am a giver, giver, giver. I deserve a better spouse. A new and improved one. I don't have one. I deserve one. I deserve. I deserve, you know, as a, as a coach and having been, you know, involved in athletics, I mean, I don't know how many times you walk away saying, I deserve, we deserve to win that game. We really deserved it. We outplayed him. We out-hustled him. We out-hit him. We did everything but outscore him. And I guess that's the only thing that really matters. You know, I mean, we all get like that. I deserve better. But you know what God's mercy is all about? He doesn't give us what we truly deserve. I want you to stop and think about this. Get this clearly and, and distinctly forever and ever. Amen. The next time you ask God for what you feel you deserve, thank Him that He doesn't answer your prayer. You got that? Lamentations 3.22, we read this. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. You know what that means? We're not all burned up in the fire. We're not destroyed, spiritually destroyed forever and ever, and punished with eternal punishment and condemnation because it's through the mercies of God that we are not consumed. Do you understand what the Bible says that you and I truly deserve? We deserve hell. Do you understand that? It's important that we do because that's where our misunderstanding of the love and the compassion of God and the mercies of God all begin. God doesn't care about me because he doesn't give me what I deserve. And God's saying, it's because of my mercy that I don't give you what you deserve. Do you understand that? In Ephesians chapter, five, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we read these words. As for you, speaking of all of us, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. I like that. The word transgressions means to stumble, to trip. It means that you're cruising along okay for a little while, and the next thing you know, you trip, you stumble, you fall. Uh, our, our youngest daughter had a, well, it's a soccer, it's not really, it's, it's indoor soccer played outside in a rink. So I guess it's not really indoor soccer, it's enclosed soccer, some, arena soccer. Well, th their game was canceled, and so we were there, and so they decided to practice, and they needed some people and, and that's how loose it was, really. We just needed some bodies out there to help in the practice. And, you know, being the kind of guy that I am, I always want to volunteer and help out, as long as it's something athletic. Anyway, so, so I, I jump out there, and I was doing pretty well. But, you know, it's like carpet. It's, it's, it's like AstroTurf. And, I, and they all have turf shoes on, and I had tennis shoes on. And, uh, and it had been raining, if you haven't noticed. And, and it was a little wet out there. 
But I was doing really good for a while, you know, just kind of doing my thing, kicking it back in. You know, hey, go ahead, feed it off the wall, doing it. And then gave it one of these where I kicked it, and this leg went this way. And that, you know, the leg, one leg went north, one leg went south. And when you do that, it hurts. It does, just in case you ever wondered. It hurts. But, but then I thought, well, you know, it was God, well, what a great illustration of transgression. You're moving along, and you're looking pretty good, and everything's going fine. But then you just trip, you stumble, you fall. And you realize that you messed up. See, God is saying, you know what? We were all dead in our transgressions. We all misstepped. He said not only our transgressions, but also our sins. And the word sin means what we missed the mark. God demands perfection, but we aren't perfect. See, God is holy and he is just by nature and character, but man is not. Man is hopeless while we've sinned and falls shorter. And that's what the word sin is. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. We're not hitting the bullseye every time. We may think we're coming close, but reality is we missed the bullseye, and that's all there is to it. And we were dead in our sins and our transgressions. We stumbled and tripped before God. We fell flat on our face. We didn't live up to his standard, which is perfection. God says, you want to see me? You've got to be perfect. None of us are perfect. We're all okay in our own estimation. But if we analyzed one another, none of us are even that. But God says you tripped and you fell and you stumbled. And yet we have no hope. And as we go on, it says we used to live. That's the way we used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time. Every one of us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. No, not even one of us. We all stumbled and fell before God. But the Bible says, you know, you're either sane or you ain't. It says you're either a child of the devil or you're a child of God. You're one or the other. You're not in the middle trying to decide which direction you want to go. It said you are dead in your sins and your transgressions. And he goes on and says, we all live that way. We gratified the cravings of that nature. We followed its desires and its thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature... You see what our biggest problem is as Christians when we're dealing with friends, relatives, neighbors, whomever, that do not know the Lord? The biggest problem that they have is by nature they do what they do. And we try to encourage them to live differently. You cannot live differently when it is your nature to live that way. What they need is a new nature. What they need is, according to the Bible, to be born again. To be spiritually dead and made spiritually alive. That's what it's all about. That's the gospel. And there's nothing else you can do about it. Stop dealing with the way people live because they live the way they live by their nature. They are, they are sinful or sinners because, not because they sin, but because they are. You understand what I'm saying? You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. The nature precedes the action. And so as we look at this, what he's trying to get across to us is, you know what, that's our problem, we're dead in our sins. But here's where the change takes place, he says this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Man, what a huge but that is. But God. Do you understand what's being said? You were dead, I was dead, I stumbled and I fell, but God raised me up. When I was down on the carpet at the soccer arena, it represented being dead in my sins. And there was no way that I could get myself up off the rug. If I kept trying, I'd kept falling. There was no way I could get up. 
But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that God, but God reached down and he gave me his hand. And the only thing I needed to do was reach up and grasp on and let him pull me up. That's it. That's as simple as the gospel is. But God, what? Who is rich in love and mercy. How does God demonstrate his love for us? He demonstrates it by not giving us what we deserve and giving us what we don't deserve. And that is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. For the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's it. But God who is rich in mercy. Let me give you an example. Turn with me to John chapter 8. Stuff like this hurts our heads. It really does. I mean, I read this and it just just hurts my head to think about this. Because it just isn't the way we are. It's just not. That's why I can understand David saying, hey, I'd rather fall into God's hands. At least he's going to judge me and I'll get what I deserve. And maybe I won't even get what I deserve. Maybe he'll be merciful on me. But he says in John 8, I love this particular chapter, starting with verse 1. Because it demonstrates the mercy of God. John 8, look at verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming down to him. He sat down and he began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. It cracks me up. In the very act. I mean, you know, you, you, you get caught afterwards sometimes, you know, and, and, but in the very act. Now, I want to know, these guys are all hanging around outside. They set this poor woman up, and I'll tell you why I think that, because there wasn't a guy with them, and according to the law, the guy should have been brought too, but there wasn't a guy. The guy is probably one of them. They set this woman up. They catch her in the very act, kick the door down, or maybe the, the, the tarp or whatever was hanging there. I don't know. They, they, they kick the tarp open, and there she is. And they grab her, they drag her into the temple, and they did it all so they could just test Jesus. And so they brought her in and said, Okay, now, teacher, this woman's been caught in adultery in the very act, and the law of Moses commanded us, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Then what do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone there and the woman where she had been in the midst. I like this. You see what Jesus said? He goes, okay, if you're without sin, then you'd be the first one to throw a stone. But what happened was the older people started picking up on it quicker than young people. And that's usually the way it is, isn't it? See, because you know how it is. The longer you live, the more you realize how many times you stumble, you trip, and you fall, and you're grateful for the mercy of God. And it's a lot easier as we get older to look at the mistakes of others and be able to say, well, you know what? We've all been there. We understand that. And if there's anything we can do to help you, we're here to help you out. It's just an amazing thing if you think about it. But not young people. Because, see, young people, we never do nothing wrong. I say we. See, I colluded myself in that, didn't I? <laughs> well, maybe I shouldn't. But, but, but it's like young people never do anything wrong. Just ask them. They don't understand. They've never done anything wrong. And so they're still standing there saying, I don't get it. Give me a rock. <laughs> but the older people are like, I'll catch you later. 
I think I, I understand. I, I think I learned it. And not only that, but then there's some speculation that maybe what Jesus was doing was saying, hey, you know what? Oh, you forgot. Let me remind you of a couple of things that God in his mercy uh, just happened to you know, spare you of. And I can just see it now. Right down there. Hey, uh, there, there, Joel. You're standing over there. Joshua, you're over there. Oh, remember this? Let me write that down for you. Hosea, let me write that down for you. Oh, yeah, remember that? I'll uh, catch you later. I, I, you know, you made your point. I think I'm getting out of here. So they understood. But what Jesus said was, well, we know it. Where are the women? I mean, where, where's the, the guys who are going to stone you? He said to the woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, sin no more. Here's where we get into trouble. Tell me if you can't identify with this. But Chuck... Isn't God the same yesterday, today, and forever? But isn't the law still true? Isn't the law still valid? Did Jesus come to abolish the law? Or did he come to fulfill the law? Isn't the law a tutor that leads us to Christ? Isn't God the same yesterday, today, and forever? I mean, isn't his character the same? Why did he treat people one way, we say, in the Old Testament? It's the, you know, the God of wrath in the Old Testament. And then we see this God of mercy and love in the New Testament as if somehow, you know, they're two different gods. It's like, oh, it's the New Testament now, the New Covenant. Oh, I've got to change how I'm doing things. See, we, we, we get really confused. Is, is this contradictory? Is God contradicting himself? Let me throw this out for you to consider. Who is all sin against? God. Who is the lawgiver? God. Who makes the rules? God. Who could be merciful if he chooses to be merciful? God. Do you understand what's being said? Yes, God is a just God. Yes, God is a righteous God. He is a holy God. But you see, some of us can identify and agree with that because that's the way we are. A pound, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, and a pound of flesh, and vengeance is mine, and we'll take care of it, God. Some of us can identify with that kind of God, and we like that kind of God. But what really starts to mess us up is when God goes, Hey, I want to give you mercy. I want to grant you grace in your life. New series starting April 2nd. Grace. I want to be gracious to you. And we can't identify with that because we want justice. We want things to be fair. But God says, you know what? It's my rules. I made them. All sins against me. And if I choose to share mercy on this woman, that's what I'm going to do. You don't seem to understand the mercy of God. You see the point that he was trying to make to him? God is merciful. Being great in his mercy. Is it a contradiction? Absolutely not. From our perspective, can it be? Well, I guess so. It just depends on how you see God. If God's one-dimensional, then it's going to be one-dimensional. But God is not only just. God is love, and God is merciful. And he demonstrates that mercy often by not giving us what we truly deserve. According to the law, she deserved to die. But according to the mercy of God, he let her live. Did he, act, did he confront her sin? Absolutely. He never justified what she did. He said, go and sin no more. And he had every right to do that because he is God. Number two, we understand this about God that he also demonstrates that he cares by providing for us when we really don't deserve it. God provides for us when we really don't deserve it. If you've got your Bibles, turn back to Nehemiah chapter 9. 
Nehemiah chapter 9. And I want to see if you can identify, as I can, with what was going on in Nehemiah chapter 9. God often demonstrates His care for us in that He provides for us even when we don't deserve it. I like that. Nehemiah chapter 9, starting with verse 16, we read these words. It says this, But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. And what Nehemiah was doing after they had rebuilt the wall around the city, he was giving the people an update on what had happened in their history as a nation. They were taken into captivity and they were restored and now they were brought back to Jerusalem and Ezra rebuilt the temple and Nehemiah rebuilt the walls around the city and as they were all gathered together he was giving them kind of a a history lesson on the nation of Israel and why they ended up in the position that they ended up in. And so he said, but they, our fathers, in verse 16, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. And they refused to listen and they did not remember thy wondrous deeds which thou hast performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. You understand what's going on here? He was just saying, hey, you know what? Look at the history of the nation of Israel. And and I want you to understand as we go through this. They were chronicle groaners. They complained all the time. They continually grumbled against God and his provisions for them. It's like God said, I'll provide you with manna. And they said, we don't want to eat any more bread. We want some meat. I'll provide you with this. I don't want that anymore. I want this. And they continually complained to God. They were chronicle grumblers. A favorite line that I I heard someone saying, I really like it, and I kind of adopted it. Anytime I hear somebody whining, I always like to ask him, would you like a little cheese to go with that? You know what I mean? You want a little cheese to go with your wine. It's like, oh, you just whine and whine and grumble and complain. Give me a break. But we're like that. We grumble and complain and we moan and groan. And you know what? God doesn't love me because he doesn't give me what I want. Oh, stop sucking your thumb. I mean, that's the way it is. But that's what the people of Israel were all about. Now, and then this is what, but thou art a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate. A God that's full of mercy, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And you didn't forsake them. Listen to this. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. Thou and your great compassion, and there's our word mercy. Thou and your great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by the day to guide them on their way nor the pillow of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. And you gave them your spirit, your good spirit to instruct them, and the manna thou didst not withhold from their mouth, and thou dost give them water for their thirst. Indeed, forty years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet even swell. Let me ask you a question. Before we get too hard on the nation of Israel, let me ask you something. This past week, did you do a little grumbling, a little moaning, a little whining yourself? A little whining, a little complaining. God must not care about me because he's just not doing for me what I think I deserve. We already learned, thank God he didn't. God doesn't love me, doesn't care for me because he's not giving me what I think that I should get. You do a little whining, a little grumbling, a little complaining. See, what I would suggest, the next time we want to whine, and the next time we want to grumble, the next time we want to complain that maybe God doesn't love us, 
is to remember that God is continuing to meet my needs even when I'm grumbling and complaining and moaning before him, even when I really don't deserve it. You know, as a parent, it's pretty interesting. We can understand when our children whine and moan and complain, what do we do? We withhold from them what they think they want. You know what? I'm not going to reward that kind of behavior. If you're going to whine and moan and grumble and complain, you're not getting whatever it is that you want. You want to go to the mall? You want to go to the game? You want to do this? You want to do that? And you moan and grumble and complain and whine about it? Then you ain't going to go. Isn't that the way we are? That's the way I am. That's my first response. You got a guy, you got an athlete who wants to mumble and whine and complain and groan and, you know, and just all a chronicle groaner. I want this, I want that. You know what? You ain't getting nothing. In fact, you can get splinters in your butt. Go over there, sit down. We'll put you at left end, left end of the bench, you know, or left out. You know what I mean? I mean, that's what it is. But you know what's amazing is, as we grumble and complain and moan and groan, God is rich in mercy, keeps giving us what we need. Think about this. If you whined and moaned and grumbled this week, God still may have what? He gave you life. He gave you breath. He's given you health, no matter what state it's in. He may have given you a job. He's provided for you. He gave you food. He gave you shelter. He gave you clothing. He gave you all the things he ever promised that he'd ever do. He said he promised to meet our needs. The psalmist said at the end of his life, I look back and I've noticed that God's people never gone with, any, with, with, with want for anything. God's always provided for them. Even when we were moaning and groaning. Even when if it was up to us, we wouldn't give each other anything. God, who is rich in mercy, says, but I don't work that way. I love him. I care for him. I care for you, Chuck. And I'm going to give you what you don't really deserve. And I'm going to provide for you even when others wouldn't give you anything because of your attitude. He provides for us. I like that. The third way, and the the last thing that we'll discuss, demonstrates his mercy for us in a very practical way, including these others, and that is by forgiving us our sins. You cannot understand fully the mercy of God until you understand that God demonstrates his mercy for us when he forgives our sins. God forgives our sins. King David learned about the mercy of God after his sin of adultery and murder with Bathsheba and her husband in Psalm 51.1. He said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. I want to challenge you to think about something. Many of us, I believe, do not understand the mercy of God, do not understand how much God cares about us, do not understand that God really does love us because we've got sin in our life and we're not willing to confess it before God. See, King David, as he was confronted finally with his sin, he said, Lord, Grant mercy on me. I know what I did was wrong before you. He chose deliberately to do it. He wasn't deceived into it in any way. says he saw her, he liked what he saw, and he wanted her. And when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And he did what he did. He was guilty before God. And he knew that God had every right to judge him. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Proverbs 28, 13 says, you know what, though? If you conceal your sin, you will not prosper. 
but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Isn't that a wonderful truth? If we confess our sin, God's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As you sit here today and you listen to these words and the Spirit of God is moving in your heart, He's saying, you know what? There's an area of your life that you know you're sinning before God. And the reason that you're not experiencing mercy or the reason that you don't think that God cares about, cares about you, the reason you think that God, doesn't, that, that God doesn't love you is because you won't admit that what you're doing is wrong. You don't feel the love of God in your life, though he says he loves you. You can't feel that because there's not that fellowship. He's saying, but if you confess that, if you forsake that, God will give you mercy. You see a movie, Forrest Gump? If you didn't, you're probably the only one left. I mean, you know, I don't know. But do you remember the scene where um, uh, Tom Hanks, the lieutenant that he had in, in Vietnam, he lost his legs, and he was angry at God, and it showed him he was drunk, and he was angry, and he was cynical, and there was a man that I sure believe that God didn't care about him at all, and God didn't love him. And he strapped himself up on the mast of the ship, and in the middle of the storm, he shook his fist in the face of God and said, God! God! I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I can do it all on my own. And there's this transformation. There's this rebirth that takes place in this character's life in the movie. We see him shaking his fist in the face of God. And what it doesn't tell us, but what the Bible tells us is, you know what? But when you, you confess that sin of pride, and you confess that you can do it on your own, and you cry out for mercy before God, God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. God answers that prayer. And there's this rebirth that takes place in this character. All of a sudden, you see he's a whole new person. He still doesn't have any legs, but he has hope. He has joy. He has peace. He's found peace according to what the movie you know, projectors would like you to know or those who write these things. He's found peace within himself. And I say, no, he's found peace with God. Because it's only when we find peace with God that we can find peace within. And it has to start there. But see, God is merciful and he demonstrates it. He holds back from us what we truly deserve. He provides for our needs even when we don't deserve them. And he also is merciful in that he forgives our sins. As we go through all these things, you know, you wonder sometimes, as you read through what the Bible teaches, you know, do we really understand how much God cares? And the reason some of us don't think that he does is because the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 7, if we cast all our cares upon him, what? He will care for us. But we want to take it all ourselves. I don't want to have to turn to God for help and mercy. I want to be able to think that I can do it on my own. That's the pride of man. I don't need God. I can handle it myself. I can do it all on my own. And you know what happens? You get physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted because you realize you can't. Listen to this little article I ran into. I thought maybe you'd like it. It's, an, it's entitled, I Am Tired. Yes, I'm tired. For several years, I've been blaming it on middle age, iron-poor blood, lack of vitamins, air pollution, water pollution, saccharin, obesity, dieting, underarm odor, yellow wax buildup, and a dozen other maladies that make you wonder if life is really worth living. But now I find out, taint that. I'm tired because I'm overworked. The population of this country is 200 million. 84 million are retired. That leaves 116 million to do the work. There are 75 million in school which leaves 41 million to do the work. Of this total, there are 22 million employed by the government. That leaves 19 million to do the work. 
4 million are in the armed forces, which leaves 15 million to do the work. Take from that total the 14,800,000 people who work for the state and city governments, and that leaves 200,000 people to do the work. Now, there are 188,000 in hospitals, so that leaves 12,000 to do the work. Now, there are 11,998 people in prisons. That leaves just two people to do the work, you and me. And you, you're standing there reading this. <laughs> and he goes on, no wonder I'm tired. I like that. But it's true. I'm tired. And the reason I'm tired is because I haven't trusted God enough to cast all my burdens and cares upon him because he says he'll care for me. The reason I feel God doesn't care about me is that I've been trying to do his job. And all I need to do is turn it over to him. Lord, you can do a better job than me any day of the week. And all I want to do is just have some fun. <laughs> all I want to do is just toss them on you. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, we read this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I'll tell you what, it's a mystery to me that God cares anything about me. It really is. It's just a mystery to me that he does. But the fact is, the Bible says that he does, and God cannot lie, and the word of God will not lead us down a wrong path. God loves me. God loves you. He cares about each one of us. But he says, just cast your burdens upon him so he can do what he promises to do. Do you know the love of God? I love this. Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon his name in truth. I saw this little poem. I'll read it in closing. But it kind of sums it all up. You've probably seen it. It's called Footprints. You know, and it's one of those things that, you know, you see it, you don't keep a copy of it, and then it bothers you, and then you have to go running around at a Christian bookstore looking for it. And then it was like, oh, great, they got, you know, a $299 photo, a picture of it, painting, and I was like, do you have anything a little smaller than that? How about, some, you know, how about something like in a bookmark? And, uh, hey, and they just happen to have one of those. So anyway, here's what it says. One night a man dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. As scenes of his life flashed before him, he noticed that there were two sets of footprints in the sand. He also noticed that his saddest, lowest times, there was but one set of footprints. This bothered the man, and he asked the Lord, Did you not promise that if I gave my life to you, that you'd be with me all the way? Then why is there but one set of footprints during the most troublesome times of my life? And the Lord answered him and said, My precious child, I love you and would never forsake you. During those times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I picked you up and I carried you. Let's pray. Father, we're just grateful for your love and for your concern. God, we just pray that each one of us, as we go through times in our life, well, and actually in every area of our life and every time of our life, may we be willing to allow you to pick us up and to carry us. May we never doubt your love and your concern for us because it's clear all through your word that you do love us and you care for us. May we become people who are quite willing to cast our cares upon you because we know that you care for us. May we be also people who are willing to admit when we're wrong in our life and when we've tripped and fallen and we've uh, sinned or transgressed according to your principles and according to your word. God, may we 
cry out for forgiveness that we may find mercy in our time of need. We just thank you that you're a gracious God, that you're a God of mercy, that you're a God of love, that you're also a God of justice, a God of truth, a God of holiness, a God of righteousness. And may we always, as we consider our relationship with you, know all those things are true equally and always at the same time. May we never put you in a box that we think you have to do for us what we want you to do. But may we be willing always to submit to your will in every area. God, you tell us that blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. May we be people of mercy and compassion as you are towards us, that we would be that way toward one another. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.